Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need to apologize because my dog is barking again. So if he uh, shows up on the podcast, I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. he's a he's a working boy and he just doesn't sleep. He just barks. So he's a hardworking man. He's doing his job. We can't tell him to be no. quiet because I pay him the big bucks, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. So just right off the top, if you hear dog barking, just ignore it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's just Rocky just saying his piece. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then we just want to recap. And yeah, anybody dipped out early on our last episode, you might have missed an announcement. And if you don't have us on social media, which you should, but if you don't, we did have a pretty big announcement at the end of our last episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tara and I are knocked up. Yep. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, we'll be, we're due within, well, what? six and eight weeks here so yep 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 within that yeah yeah. how does that make you feel (laughs) it's kind of scary Uh, so yeah we'll be taking a little we'll be taking a little hiatus after (laughs) the chernobyl series is all wrapped up and we'll be back in a little while in a little bit we're gonna see how things go so just wanted to make sure everybody knows that so when we dip out people aren't like what the hell is happening What happened to Tara and Michelle? No, we're fine. I'm actually yes. we might not be fine. Um, right. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to say, but you don't have to launch a full scale investigation looking for us because we will be at home with tiny humans. So that's where we'll be. And we'll be creeping it real on social media. So yeah, you can always find us there. Sure. Send us a message and check us out. We'll try to keep things updated yes. on there. Yeah, and then, I'm excited for this, our favorite responses from our fluff and stuff question from our last episode, super fun. Our question was, what is your favorite scary movie? Um, Mine was off of Instagram, and it was Illist Minds. They just said scream, and that's the best possible answer for Mm -hmm. this question, because it's actually a line from the movie. Totally. What's your favorite scary movie? And like... (laughs) cue drew barrymore dying in the background um exactly fantastic i loved it perfect and it's a classic it's one of my favorites too so excellent every time i ask what is your favorite scary movie i've played that in my head as well i'm like is anybody else picking that up or is it just me but i'm glad somebody else did (laughs) yes absolutely my favorite response came from garth on facebook and he said the mist best ending of a movie ever and oh the ending Guts me. I had to choose this because I watched The Mist when I was really young. And I remember that ending just like standing out and just messing with me. And then the other day I got home and I was like, I need to do writing. I need to work on Chernobyl. And my husband could just see it in my face. He's like, you need to just take a break. Like you have not sat down and watched a movie in months and you are exhausted and you're going to sit there. I'm going to cook you food. I'm going to do dishes and you're going to watch a movie. And I just so happened to turn on Amazon Prime or whatever. And The Mist was there. And I was like, yes, I've been wanting to rewatch this movie forever. So I was watching it as I posted this question on our social media. And that's what Garth said as I was watching The Mist. And I was like, this is perfect. I feel like it's fantastic. I feel like it's a movie that not a lot of people talk about, but it always really stands out to me. So I thought that was really great. (laughs) Uh, But super fun. So Wiley has never seen it before because he is not like a spooky 
fan whatsoever so like throughout the whole thing like I'm just loving life I'm loving the stupid creepy monsters in the mist like you know that's my jam I love the tremors and all those movies so I love that part but the ending's coming and I'm like oh yeah the ending's coming like I'm getting psyched and I'm watching like Wiley watch it I'm going back and forth watching Wiley watching the tv watching Wiley and then it slowly dawns on me that like Wiley can't handle this this is going to be really bad. Why they can't handle this? <laughs> and as it happened and he realizes what's going on, like I could just see it in his face that he was just crushed. <laughs> and like it. It's like, what did you him. make me watch? It really messed with him. And he was not okay for a long period after we watched the movie. Oh, we had to, you poor know. Wiley. <laughs> decompress and we had to talk through it and I'm like I forgot that you're not the dark and twisty type like me like I was right and he was just like this is not okay (laughs) that's not okay no so that was my recent experience of watching The Mist (laughs) and I don't think he's gonna let you pick a movie for a very long time probably not I lost my privileges there (laughs) worth it probably (laughs) definitely oh that's fantastic it was just so perfect but anyways anyways all right friends grab your glass and get cozy let's talk about murder with our big old water bottle it's like a giant ass water bottle two liter water bottle is what i'm holding right now yeah it's it's awesome it hasn't been wine for a very very long time when we come back, it will be wine bottles with straws. I'm pretty sure of it. Oh, man. <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner, watching other people drink all that wine. I was like, this is torture. This is torture. Yep. I literally would like lean over and just like pick up somebody's cup and just sniff it. Smell it. <laughs> I do that when I've, like, had my, when I've had my caffeine intake limit for the day. I'll just like smell a bag of coffee beans like I need more. <laughs> yeah. Just all the things. Yeah, the joy. Yes. But anyways, we are here to talk about Chernobyl. Good times. Yes. (laughs) Chernobyl part three. Let's do it. So we last left off with the mention of a sarcophagus and the fact that the city of Pripyat would never be habitable ever again. So let's jump right back in and discuss the tomb that would be created to shield reactor number four from the rest of the world. Before they could start construction, further cleanup needed to be done. It was just never-ending. We had previously mentioned the liquidators cleaning up the area around the nuclear power plant, but the real danger was actually lying on the roof. It was crucial to finish clearing the radioactive material off of Unit 3 not only to build the sarcophagus, but also to continue operating the other three reactors at the plant, which apparently was very important to them to get the other reactors off. I feel like you should have just turned them off and walked away. Just, but what do I know? Exactly. A disaster to that scale. Maybe you just want to, we're done here. Walk away. Right. Yeah, it's fine. Wash your hands of that. But that's not my decision, clearly. <laughs> and I may have jumped the gun a little bit when it came to bringing up the bio-robots because the roof was really the main focus for this group. Major General Nikolai Terekhanov, Deputy Commander of the USSR's Civil Defense Force, was tasked with conducting the cleanup on the roof. 
He divided the area into three groups according to their height and level of contamination, and they were all named after women in his life. Area K was Katya, where Gamma Fields reached 1,000 Renkin. Area N was Natasha. Gamma Fields here reached 2,000 Renkin. And then there was the area M for Masha, and they didn't even want to discuss the levels of radiation in this field. It was overlooking Unit 4, and it was littered with material that came directly from the exploded core. There were graphite blocks laying everywhere, and some of the concrete and the equipment that was thrown from the reactor hall weighed nearly half a ton. This was the same area that the firefighters fought to extinguish the burning debris months earlier without truly knowing what kind of danger they were in. It was determined that the levels of radiation in Area M reached as high as 10,000 Renkin an hour. This was enough for a fatal dose to be reached in less than three minutes. Wow. Terrifying. I hate it. I hate it so much. (laughs) So do we know if the ladies that those areas were named after were happy ladies in this life or were they like (laughs) ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, like jaded lover? (laughs) I had the same thought. I'm like, I feel like these were probably like really tough women or really mean women. I know that Masha was his older sister, but I don't exactly know what that relationship looked like. So I can't really say for sure. Maybe she beat the crap out of him a lot. <laughs> Very well could have, but apparently she made quite the impact to get that I area guess. named after her. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Yes. So, of course, plenty of brainstorming had to be done to come up with ways to clear the roof of the building without risking human life. But, of course, we already know that that wouldn't be possible. Again, they tried using robots the real kind of robots, not the living, breathing, bio kind, but those specifically designed to handle radioactive material. Even these could not operate in the intense conditions. So we're seeing this time and time again. (laughs) Try the robots, they die. It just doesn't work, unfortunately. Ugh, yeah. Their electronics were quickly scrambled from the radiation. The wheels would get stuck up in the bitumen, and they would get caught up in the field of mangled machinery and debris. There was also an idea of blotting the rooftop using large mats soaked in glue. These rags would be lowered onto the roof, allowed to dry, and then the crane would lift the mats and the materials attached away, and then they would be destroyed. And this actually could have worked quite well, but permission for this operation was denied, as the cranes were reserved to construct the sarcophagus and they could not be spared. Which is too bad. I kind of want to see what that would have looked like if that would have helped. I was going to say, that's like... A big arts and crafts project. It does. Or like the claw game, you know? You gotta Yeah. It's kind of like that's that. a lot of glue. But with a lot of glue. <laughs> Where would you get that much glue? Wow. I don't know. CUSSR, <laughs> they seem to find things places like yes. ten thousand buses and stuff. True. <laughs> <laughs> they do have this capability of just sourcing things out of nothing. <laughs> yes. So that leads us back to square one again. Biorobots seem to be the only solution for this problem. At least this time, compared to the firefighters before them, the men were given slightly better protective equipment to wear. They strapped on knee-length lead aprons and used the material to cover their chest, back of their heads, spines, groin, and feet. Around their faces were green canvas hoods with heavy respirators and goggles. It had a real apocalyptic vibe to it. They were super spooky looking, 
and would yeah, be a pretty good. It would be a pretty badass Halloween costume, though, in case anybody's looking for ideas. Just saying. True. True. Yes. I probably wouldn't answer my door for you. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. But at least you'd be wearing a mask. Just saying. True. <laughs> it works in this day and age. <laughs> Anyways, with all of that protective equipment, which I'm sure was not light or easy to move in, it helped reduce radiation exposure by one third. So... That does help a bit, but when you're dealing with 10,000 rank in an hour, it's still incredibly dangerous. So the most important factor for the bio-robots would be their speed. Each man was given a specific task, and they only had three minutes to complete it, as this would keep their estimated dose under the regulation of 25 rem. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Worst relay race ever. Just saying. Right? 10 out of 10 would in not lead. want to like, participate. Oof. <laughs> Ugh. Yes. In order to make the men most efficient, General Terakonov built a full-scale mock-up of the roof using aerial photos and fake materials that represented the graphite blocks, fuel assemblies, and anything else that either needed to be removed or would be an obstacle for them. Once on the roof, they would know exactly where they needed to go and what their objective was. Clumsy with their awkward attire, they would take turns running onto the roof, scooping up radioactive waste, and flinging it back into the open reactor core. Each man was only supposed to go up one time, but many would return to sacrifice themselves over and over again. It took 12 days and 3,828 men to complete the task. Each heroic man was eventually given a printed certificate, a small cash bonus, was decontaminated, and then was sent home. Ugh. Probably should throw a bottle of vodka in there as well. <laughs> right? Like, small cash bonus. Here's a printed certificate <laughs> thanks for you know probably dying for us here's a piece of paper and a couple rubles get lost <laughs> right bye 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 <laughs> and i'm sure they were happy to go <laughs> right once the cleanup was complete technicians from the ministry of energy were able to begin working on the remaining rbmk reactors to ensure they would be safely operational again the specialist modified the reactors by altering the steam void coefficient and the functioning of the control rods. They also worked at decontaminating the entire nuclear power plant so it'd be safe for the workers to return. Even though the reactors were still being operated for some time after the explosion initially occurred, but anyways. Regardless, <laughs> once the roof was clear of radioactive material and the modifications to the RBMK reactors were complete, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was operational again on October 1st, 1986. It's crazy. <sighs> Why? <laughs> so while this was all underway, plans to construct the sarcophagus had been taking place as well. Architects, engineers, and construction troops brainstormed ways to contain the radioactive mess for good, but simply burying it in crushed stone or drowning it in concrete would not do the trick. Although it was tempting to completely seal it off from the atmosphere, the contaminants inside actually required ventilation for cooling purposes. Otherwise, there would be a risk of a new chain reaction happening all over again. This meant that the best option would be covering the plant with a huge shell. And this was easier said than done, as reactor number four was nearly the size of a soccer field, and therefore a roof that would cover that much area would be extremely heavy and therefore would require heavy-duty support pillars. Due to the explosion, the building would not likely have the structural integrity that it used to, and the area around it was too radioactive to get close enough to assess its condition thoroughly. 
they also had significant time restraints as Gorbachev gave them a deadline of less than four months to complete the project. Oh, Gorby. Oh, Gorby. Reminds me when the reactor Ugh. was actually being built and they had these time restraints that caused things to go wrong and things to be rushed and everything like that. And it didn't end well. It was totally not their fault, Tara. Right. They were just doing what they were told. It's true. It's true. So since no one could work that closely to the reactor number four for more than three minutes, they decided to prefabricate sections for an entirely new structure elsewhere. And then they would need to assemble it over the plant using cranes and robots. This would be one of the most dangerous and ambitious civil engineering feats in history. The steel parts of the sarcophagus were constructed in heavy sections and once put together, they needed to rely on gravity alone to keep everything in place. One piece, nicknamed the Mammoth, was a 70-meter-long beam that weighed almost 180 tons. And when it was being moved to the construction site, the trailers designed to carry it could only drive four kilometers an hour. Ooh, speed demons. Just imagine, like, that's massive. So big. This was the largest and most important beam for the foundation of the building, but it had to be rested on top of a mess of wreckage and broken concrete. Obviously, this was not ideal, but they did not have a lot of other options. Assembly went ahead, and almost all of it had to be done without blueprints, but only aerial photos to rely on, as measurements of the ruins could not be safely collected. Eventually, they did come up with a solution, however, and they used a crane carrying a 20-ton lead cabin that could fit four men inside. The crane would then swing the men over the reactor safely for them to survey the area. Which kind of sounds fun. I don't know who gets like pegged to be the guy that has to swing over on the crane. Yeah. Like, I think there's, are they like, are you're physically fit? You know, you're not too chubby. (laughs) You can, you can swing. Sure. You can swing. (laughs) I think a lot of people just got voluntold what to do. (laughs) Like, I think, well, I know they did, but yeah. Yeah. This was definitely beneficial, but it still did not provide enough information about the foundation for the mammoth. So the chief engineer of the ship, Lev Bucharov, decided he needed to go in and assess the situation with his own eyes. So he did, as fast as he could. And even though he was exposed to great amounts of radiation, he now had a more concrete plan. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was going to improvise a concrete platform on top of the debris that was strong enough to hold the entire weight of the mammoth. On November 1st, the beam was set into place and the rest of the sarcophagus could be assembled around it. The new building was equipped with a ventilation system, radiation and temperature monitoring devices, and a sprinkler system that could spray the ruins with a neutron absorbing solution as soon as any reactions may start up again. By November 30th, the enormous concrete and steel structure was complete, which was just seven months and four days after the first explosion occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The relief that many felt was immense. I am sure. I'm sure. (laughs) I feel relief. And like, this is, this happened years ago. (laughs) And I'm like, phew. 35 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. We're good now. (laughs) We're good. Everything's fine. (laughs) It's the same. It's totally all right. (laughs) But of course, the cleanup and the construction had put many lives in danger. Dr. Angelina Gaskova announced that a total of 31 men and women were now dead as a direct result of the disaster. 
This is still considered to be the final death toll of the explosion to this day. But we'll talk about that more later. Because I'm not yes, sure if I we will. will. That. <laughs> I am. I have some feelings about that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll come back to it. Bone marrow transplants were proving to be not effective, as only one patient that had received the treatment would survive. Against all odds, however, one person that did survive the brutal ARS was Anatoly Dyatlov. Even though he absorbed a total dose of approximately 550 rem, he was released from hospital in November. But he wasn't a free man for long because shortly after he returned to Kiev, he was arrested and placed in pretrial detention. Yeah, so what's worse? You die or you wind up shot by the KGB because you caused a giant nuclear reaction right. that exploded? Neither are great options, I'm going to say. No, neither's good. I don't think... Either way, you die. <laughs> Can I opt out? <laughs> so, this brings us to the true crime aspect of the case. The investigation and the trial. <laughs> for all of you sitting there waiting for the true crime. You know what? I actually had a lot of people tell me they were really excited for us to cover this. Nice. Even though it's not our, like, typical true crime, so... Well, you know what? I'm there having a lot of fun with it, so I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to my surprise, the investigation actually started almost immediately after the explosion occurred on April 26, 1986, despite many efforts to keep this situation a secret. Sergei Yankovsky was the chief investigator of the prosecutor's office of the Kiev region and was assigned to investigate. Upon arriving on the scene with his boss, many officials tried to send them away as the situation was being dealt with. But with many Soviet bigwigs and the KGB in town and reports of many men in hospital with radiation sickness, they knew something wasn't right. At 6 a.m., they officially decided to open a case and press charges. The top-secret classified investigation had two focuses, a criminal inquiry and a special investigation within the state's closed military and nuclear installations. At the same time, Lagozov was launching his technical and scientific inquiry. Many were quick to assume that the accident was entirely due to operator error, but RBMK experts analyzed the data from the control room the night of the explosion and concluded that there were a multitude of contributing factors. One of the specialists even recalled that two years prior at a meeting of the Reactor Design Bureau, someone had suggested that it was, in fact, possible for a reactor to explode as the control rods would displace water from the bottom of the core and cause a sudden spike of reactivity. The theory at the time was dismissed as it seemed too improbable to worry about. Oh, yeah. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It won't happen. Minor issue. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Right. So right away, the cause of the explosion was determined to be an unruly and uncontrollable power surge in the reactor. Now all they had to do was find the scapegoats to blame it on. Unsurprisingly, two of the scapegoats that were decided on were the operators in the control room for that night, which was Leonid Toptonov and Alexander Akimov. Conveniently, these two could not prove otherwise as they had both died from their radiation exposure, so they could not defend themselves. The investigators and the KGB continued making their rounds interviewing operators and engineers, even those that were dying in hospital. When Burkhanov was interviewed back at the station, he essentially tried throwing Foman under the bus saying that he trusted him and thought it was only an electrical test that they were performing. But uh, actually, they were attempting to perform the safety test that you chose to ignore right from the beginning, so don't try to shift the blame here, man. Yeah, dude. 
you were definitely have some responsibility in here. Wow. That was really good English. Did you hear that? (laughs) That's okay. That's how I'm speaking tonight as well. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. It's fine. (laughs) You guys know what we mean. You should be used to it by now. Sometimes we can't speak. Right? It's fine. Most of the time. Not just some of the time. Thankfully, he wasn't fooling any of the detectives, and right away, arrangements were being made to have him removed as the director. On July 3rd, Gorbachev asked for the government commission's final report on the cause of the disaster. Boris Sherbina presented the report. Quote, The accident was a result of several violations of the maintenance schedule by the operating staff and also of serious design flaws in the reactor. But these causes are not on the same scale. The commission believes that the thing that triggered the accident was mistakes made by the operating personnel, end quote. Turbina did go on to admit that the flaws in the RBMK's design and construction were extensive and they were not up to safety standards and that plans to build more should be scrapped, which is fair. Maybe don't build any more of those. Yeah, just don't. Like, this just is bad. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> don't do it again. Right? Simple. This made Gorbachev angry, as this incident would affect his image to the rest of the world when he was trying to make changes and be more transparent. But how could he do so when he wasn't even being given accurate information? Now his name would be tarnished, and he would be blamed for attempting a cover-up. Poor Gorby. (laughs) Poor Gorby. I feel so bad for him. (laughs) I really don't. Um. (laughs) It's so hard. It's like, if you're actually trying to do things better that's great but it's really hard to trust anybody in the soviet union (laughs) right and if you are not wanting this information released doesn't that go against like all of your policies that got you elected elected if that's what they did yeah (laughs) (laughs) however that works over there at that time yeah Plans to build more RBMK reactors were immediately terminated, and any that were still operational had to be modified in order to bring them into line with current safety standards. It was also decided that Burkhanov was also at fault, as well as the chief engineer, Foman, for tolerating rule-breaking, criminal negligence, and for failing to safely prepare for the safety tests that caused the accident to take place. Both men were arrested in August and were taken into a KGB holding cell. A KGB holding cell just doesn't sound like a very pleasant place to be. You know, I don't want to experience it. I don't. It doesn't sound like fun. I don't think you would have the luxuries that I am looking for. (laughs) No, (laughs) I need a comfy bed that's not made out of cement. True. Um, I need food, you know, water. (laughs) Basic necessities. Basic necessities. (laughs) Yes. I don't feel like a KGB holding cell would have those. Probably not. So throughout Lagazov's scientific investigation, he was becoming unwell, both physically from the large amounts of radiation he had been exposed to and mentally, as he was overwhelmed by how poorly the incident had been dealt with. Regardless, he continued to work on compiling his reports with the help of dozens of specialists and hundreds of documents. In August, Lagazov was ready to present his report at a special conference held at the International Atomic Energy Agency headquarters in Vienna. A quote from the book, Midnight in Chernobyl. Quote, the mood was somber and tense, and the wood-paneled conference hall was packed. 600 nuclear experts from 62 countries, accompanied by more than 200 journalists, had come to discover the truth about the accident that, by now, transfixed the world. 
the burden upon Lagozov was enormous. Not only the reputation of all of Soviet science, but also the future of the global nuclear industry was at stake. The disaster suggested that the USSR's technicians could not be trusted to build or operate their own reactors, and that the technology itself was so intrinsically hazardous that even in the West, nuclear power stations should be shut down or phased out." End quote. Lagozov presented for five straight hours and then sat for several more hours answering questions. Everyone was impressed by the apparent honesty of the Soviet scientist and were satisfied that the health and the safety consequences were within acceptable limits. However, Lagozov would later admit that he did not lie in Vienna, but he did not exactly tell the whole truth. Yeah. Yeah. Which is disappointing because, you know, it's kind of rooting for Lagozov you know be different i know but... me too the whole time i know but i'm sure if he did speak the entire truth the kgb may have had some thoughts on that <laughs> may have been in I'm trouble pretty sure he wouldn't get to speak again exactly so i mean that's kind of fair mm -hmm. speaking of the kgb brukhanov had remained in jail awaiting his impending trial throughout the winter of 1986 on January 20th, 1987, the investigators from the prosecutor's office filed their closing indictments and six men were formally charged for the incident. This included Viktor Burkhanov, Nikolai Fomin, Anatoly Dyatlov, Boris Rogozkin, chief of the night, night shift, Yuri Loshkin, the plant's nuclear safety inspector, and Alexander Kovalenko, head of the workshop who had signed off on the test. Charges included breach in safety regulations resulting in loss of life and abuse of power. The trial was set to begin on March 18, 1987, but had to be postponed as Fulman remained too mentally unstable to take the stand and had actually attempted suicide while in prison. July 7, 1987 was when the men would stand trial for causing the accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. According to the Soviet law, a trial must be held within the same district where the alleged crime took place, but since it could not be held in Pripyat, they decided to move it to a mere 14 kilometers away in the actual town of Chernobyl. Not sure if that would be my first choice. <laughs> dumbest rule, right? If, like, I mean, can you the make... The dumbest rule. Can you make an exception? Like, the one time you can make an exception, I feel like should be this time. Somebody make a document... Get everybody to sign it. We'll it's, just move this to like Kiev. not in a radioactive hot zone. Wherever. It's just fun. <laughs> about not only 14 kilometers away from an exploded nuclear power plant. Just saying. Just saying. Right. Just, <laughs> seems like bad news. But uh, what do we know? What do we know? If you want to fry your brain, that's fine. <laughs> All six men entered pleas of not guilty. Throughout the trial, Burkhanov remained composed and had accepted that decisions against him had already been made. Fomin was visibly upset as he was frowning and sweating the entire time, which is just a great image. <laughs> yeah, it's so <laughs> nice. <laughs> he placed blame for the accident on Dyatlov and Akimov as he felt they deviated from the program. Dyatlov was definitely the most confrontational out of all of the defendants. He was adamant that the operators were not to blame as they were not warned about the potential explosive reactor. He also claimed that he had not been present in the room during the crucial moments before the accident had taken place and had not given orders to trainees to lower the control rods by hand, 
though there were witnesses that said otherwise. And those trainees, by the way, had gone on to lose their lives over that. Yeah, he was really adamant that he was not there. Mm -hmm. He's like, I was in the pisser or whatever. And everybody else was like, no, Uh, no, dude, you was there. No, no, we all saw you. And you continuously ordered people back to the reactor to put the control rods in because you could not accept. a belligerent asshole. Yeah. Yeah, that's what all the people said that were there. That's what that they say. It. I wasn't there, but, but he people said he remembers being in the bathroom. So right. So whatever. Uh, less than a month after the trial began, the final verdicts were delivered on July 29th. All six men were found guilty. Loshkin was sentenced to two years in prison. Kovalenko was given three. Rogozkin five, and Brkanov, Foman, and Dyatlov each received the maximum sentence. 10 years confinement in a penal colony. Essentially, they're being sent away to a hard labor camp to work out their sentences, which I cannot imagine would be a nice place. No, I just, it doesn't feel good. (laughs) Mm -mm, mm -mm. At the end of 1987, a new city was being constructed to once again house the workers of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and to replace the city of Pripyat. Built about 40 kilometers northeast, it was built on contaminated land, though apparently the annual radiation exposure fell within official limits permitted for populations living near nuclear power plants. So it's fine. It's fine. Don't even worry about it. So broken. (laughs) Just feel like we're repeating history here. Like, maybe do something different. Did we not learn anything? Like, anything at all? (laughs) What's the definition of insanity again? Doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result? <laughs> Just like, yeah, I think it was our buddy Einstein that said yeah, that. Yeah, our good friend that we know very well and hang out with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On December 14th, 1987, the remaining three reactors of the Chernobyl plant became operational again. Meanwhile, Lagosov was still focused on his studies of the reactors and the nuclear industry, to the point where it just about became an obsession. Even though his health was continuing to decline, he continued to make proposals to modify the structures of Soviet science, but these would constantly be ignored. People did not want to go against the status quo or have anything to do with ideas that may seem controversial. At one point, Lagozov was selected to receive a Hero of Socialist Labor Award, but when the list of recipients were published, his name had been removed. Apparently, Gorbachev decided at the last minute that no one from the Kurchatov Institute should receive an award for actions containing a disaster that they helped participate in. The next day, after phoning the secretary from his home, he was found unconscious with a bottle of sleeping pills by his side. He would survive this attempted suicide, but on April 26, 1988, exactly two years after the disaster, Lagozov hung himself in the stairwell of his family home. It just makes me so sad. I'm sad too. <laughs> and they don't really talk about like Lukasov's family, but he had a wife and he had kids and like, and they were the ones he that did found all him. of this work and they did all of, he did all of this work to try to make it better and mm-hmm. to clean everything up. And then he gets repaid by being like, no, you don't get a hero award. Sorry, buddy. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have radiation sickness. That's going to kill you. But yeah, here. Let's let your family find you hanging in a stairwell. Yeah, exactly. He was the one person that really tried to put the truth out there, even though, you know, Mm -hmm. he may not have told the whole truth all of the time, but going forward, he really did try to 
do his best to improve the world and keep this from happening again. Yeah. They're just like, nope, we're going to shun you. Everybody's going to yeah. think you're crazy and nobody's going to listen to you. We're going to deny every exactly. proposal that you put forward. And then he's like, well, what's the point then? <laughs> it's very sad. Exactly. Poor guy. So those forced to evacuate their homes in Pripyat and the surrounding areas still remained in limbo, not knowing if they would ever be able to return. In May, after the initial explosion, citizens displaced by the disaster were given a one-off payment of 50 rubles. Which, I didn't do the math here, but I have a feeling that ain't gonna last you very long, when your whole life has been uprooted and you are left in a new environment with none of your possessions. Yeah, probably not. Mm-mm. Later, the government provided a further lump sum, giving each person 200 rubles. Still, people continue to ask, when do we get to go home? Which is totally fair. Oh, man. They got told, like, bring stuff for three days. You'll be back in three days. Yeah. Yeah, not quite. No. Surprisingly, something I didn't know, beginning on July 25th, the citizens of Pripyat were actually allowed to return, but only quickly to collect certain items from their homes. They were given strict guidelines as to what they could take, and each item had to be scanned for radiation. Anything that was higher than 0.1 milliroentgen an hour had to be left behind, no matter how much people pleaded or bribed. Many found their apartments had been looted, despite having alarm systems and patrolling officers. Fridges were found still filled with huge amounts of food that were now putrefied, as everyone had been preparing for the May Day celebrations right before they were evacuated. In the end, 29,496 people had returned momentarily to their homes to get one last look before leaving for good. I don't know, there's something about the putrefied, I hate that word. I know, Um, I know. Food in the fridge that just like, I know. It makes it even worse. That's (laughs) why I had to include it because I'm just like, oh, that's horrible. It's like radioactive rotting food. That's... (laughs) gross you open your fridge and things start to move you're like okay we're gonna shut that and walk away (laughs) that didn't have legs when i left (laughs) so (laughs) oh boy it was now official that 116,000 residents from the exclusion zone needed to permanently resettle this of course wouldn't be easy as they needed to find new places to live and jobs to support their new lives but they weren't given a warm welcome by their new neighbors either. Many didn't want to share the same space with the evacuees and were shunned as people feared they would still be radioactive. Legit. I think that's a concern. It's fair. I mean, I understand it to some consent. Oh my gosh, to come. I can't talk. (laughs) To some extent. (laughs) I did read, I did not include it here, but I think basically... For a large group of people, they did put them in one apartment building that they specifically built for these people that they couldn't find homes for. And there was a large amount of radiation found within that apartment building later on. So it was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of fair. Right? Although radiation is not contagious, those that were exposed to the radiation could still be in danger. Dr. Robert Gale, the U.S. doctor that worked in Hospital 6, predicted that 75,000 people would die of cancer directly attributed to the disaster. Of course, the Soviet doctors and authorities would completely disagree and dismiss these claims. Two weeks after Lagazov's death, Soviet scientists spoke out about the medical consequences. 
They shared that 17.5 million people, including 2.5 million children under seven, had lived in the most contaminated areas as hotspots reached as far as 300 kilometers from the plant. Yet the official death toll was still only recorded as 31 people. The health minister went on to say that not a single case of injury to the public had been caused by the radiation and that, quote, we can still today be certain that there are no effects of the Chernobyl accident on human health, end quote. He also dismissed reports of illness caused by long-term consequences of the radiation as the result of a new psychological syndrome, which he called radiophobia. So many eye rolls, man. I know. Just so many. <sighs> this bothers me. <laughs> People are literally yeah. like sick and dying and there's high rates of cancer, but it's because you're afraid of the radiation, not from the radiation itself. Yeah, yeah, that's totally real. Like, I know anxiety can have physical effects, but I don't think that's the case here. Thank you. It generally doesn't give you leukemia. Right. <sighs> so frustrating. Mm -hmm. As for the liquidators, for their heroic efforts, any that felt sick would be taken care of in a dedicated clinic in Kiev called the All-Union Radiation Medicine Research Center. But those that did fall ill found that the doctors were reluctant to connect their symptoms to radiation and dismissed it with, quote, ordinary illness not related to ionizing radiation, end quote. <laughs> like, why? What is the purpose of that? Right. And I feel like if I went into the hospital for something and they're like, yes, this is normal illness. It is not related to an autoimmune disease caused by such and such. I'd be like, wait, why did you bring that up? Like, why are you specifically stating that part when normally you wouldn't say otherwise? You know, like, why did you even bring radiation into that? Exactly. Why wouldn't you just ignore it completely if it wasn't right? <laughs> yeah, it's fishy. Yeah. Although the official internationally recognized death toll is only 31 people, and the UN estimates that only 50 deaths can be directly attributed to the disaster, other estimates reach upwards of 200,000. 31? 50? 200,000? The range? It's just a broad range. It's, it's a little broad, yep. But I strongly feel that it is higher than 31. Uh, me too. <laughs> so the threat of large amounts of radiation was still not over, however, as specialists from the Kurchatov Institute right away wanted to continue exploring inside the sarcophagus. Like, they put all this effort into concealing the danger, but people just still can't help themselves. Like, just stay out of there. No. I mean, scientists are always digging for answers, right? I know. So. I know, but like, give I it. I understand. You give it sometime like they were immediately like okay let's go back in <laughs> let's get radiated <laughs> <laughs> again they created an expensive device to explore the ruins but again it stopped dead in the highly radioactive zone but eventually they did find a device that would help them receive some information a miniature plastic tank they bought at a toy store it was battery-operated and was modified to carry a decimeter, a thermometer, and a flashlight. They ran it 10 meters ahead of them so it would alert them to any imminent danger. Which I think that is hilarious, but awesome at the same time. 
<laughs> and kind of adorable, just like them like, running a little plastic yeah. tank. You imagine just a little like remote control tank like bing, going through. It's like danger, danger. <laughs> and also the fact that it was probably like five dollars versus their very expensive robotic equipment they have tried over and over again that has cost like thousands right, and, and thousands of dollars and it has not worked whatsoever and this little robot's like here we go i got this watch me go <laughs> follow me why why is that the thing that works <laughs> i don't know but i'm just so happy about it <laughs> so now being able to explore further they were able to find strange new materials and radiation fields higher than anyone had witnessed before one being a massive blob of an unknown substance that stood half as tall as a man and weighed as much as two tons. They called it the elephant's foot. Its surface was emitting 8,000 Renkin an hour. Even though being in its presence wow. for more than five minutes would lead to death, government commissions ordered further photographs and a full analysis of the material. The once molten radioactive lava had contained all the radionuclides found in nuclear fuel that somehow flowed into the corridor from the other rooms. Further investigations showed that the two-ton mass was just a fraction of the radioactive lava that had flowed from the reactor into the basement. Some consider the mass to be the most toxic object in the world. Which, which is, is insane. Scary. It is so scary. Like, <laughs> And seeing pictures and it, of people like right next to it, you're like, uh, don't do that uh, get out of there just seeing pictures of it just yeah. in general makes me uncomfortable it's just ominous like it's just a blob but that is a scary blob right mm. yeah they didn't like it moving forward on september 11th 1991 victor Burkanov was released from prison after serving only five of his 10-year sentence he was let out for good behavior right away he wanted to go back to work at the plant that he had built but that didn't fly, so instead he started a new job at the Ministry's Body for International Trade in Kiev. Which, probably don't go back to that plant. I don't think it would be well received. <laughs> like, how do you wind up getting yourself a job? Like, a decent job mm -hmm. in the government, right? Yes. After you've been in prison for fucking up so badly <laughs> that the entire world was in jeopardy. Right. I don't know. It's international trade. At least it's not putting lives at risk. <laughs> I guess, but like, still you rob a liquor store once in Canada <laughs> and you can't get a good job afterwards. But you can like try to wipe out the whole world and you just work for like, like international trade in USSR. They're just like, we'll find you something else. Don't worry. We got you. Yeah. Kovalenko and Rogoskin both petitioned for early release, which was granted, and they returned to work at the power plant. Lashkin had also been released, but died shortly after due to stomach cancer. Fulman never fully recovered from the shock of the accident and was transferred to a psychiatric hospital two years after his arrest. He was eventually released in 1990 and found work again at a nuclear power plant north of Moscow. I just don't also feel like yeah. I would go back to work in nuclear science. Especially when you're still that fragile from that incident. Like, right? if something went wrong, like, I feel like PTSD would kind of mess with your ability uh, to make yeah. decisions in a, in a moment that would require a quick decision. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. I would definitely agree. I'm just 
saying. I don't know. It just seems a little concerning. Yeah. Dyatlov spent his time incarcerated, still trying to defend himself and the operators that worked with him, which actually surprised me because in the beginning, it seemed as though he tried to put the blame on everyone else, but now he was defending Toptanov and Akimov as they couldn't defend themselves. So I appreciate that, Dyatlov. A little bit of a redemption arc there for him. So just a little boop on the scale, just a little one because he's kind of a butthead sometimes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, no. Now I call him a butthead, and now I got to talk about his death. I'm a bad person. (laughs) (laughs) Dyatlov continued to suffer radiation burns in October 1990 and was granted early release due to declining health. He died from cancer of the bone marrow in December 1995 at the age of 64. In 2008, Akimov, Toptanov, and 12 other plant staff were recognized for their heroic efforts on the night of April 26th, and were were awarded the Ukrainian Order for Courage. I find it very surprising that they didn't attribute Dyatlov's death to the Chernobyl incident, just saying, because he died from cancer of bone marrow, and he was in the control room. I feel like, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like that could be related. (laughs) Right, maybe just like bump your number up to 32, you know? Come on. He was there. He That's... was directly responsible, you know, and then he dies. The death toll should go up. I just uh, don't. Right? Like, he never got over the radiation sickness. Like, throughout his that whole time, he was suffering from burns in prison and everything like that. Like, it didn't go away. No. So after all of that, let's take a look at what happened to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, the city of Pripyat, and the surrounding area since the trial ended. So many may be surprised to find out that the remaining three reactors at the power plant continued to operate for many years after the explosion, as the Soviet Union could not afford to shut the plant down. Reactor number two was the first to be permanently shut down shortly after October 1991, when a fire broke out due to a faulty switch in a turbine. The fire began while the turbine was being idled for repairs. A faulty switch caused a surge of current to the generator, igniting insulating material on some electrical wiring. This led to hydrogen used as a coolant in the generator being leaked into the turbine hall, which apparently created the conditions for the fire to start in the roof and for one of the trusses supporting the roof to collapse. Even though the reactor was unaffected, due to the political climate, it was decided to shut down the reactor permanently after this incident. Wise. No shit! Wise decision. <laughs> like... Why does it always got to be a fire or an explosion to actually, like, shut them down? Right? (laughs) The next to shut down was reactor number one in November 1996, following pressure from foreign governments. The removal of its uncontaminated equipment is expected to be completed in 2022. In 2013, the pump lifting river water into the cooling reservoir adjacent to the facility was powered down and is expected to slowly evaporate. In April 2015, units 1 through 3 entered the decommissioning phase. In 2017, a cyber attack against the power plant affected the radiation monitoring system and took down the power plant's official website, which hosts information about the incident and the area. This was part of a series of attacks mostly against Ukraine, known as the 2017 Pritya cyber attacks. Reactor number three continued to operate until December 2000, and since then, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant has finally stopped producing energy. 
Like I know that was over 20 years ago, so it's not that recent, but it still seems way too recent to me. Um, the fact that December 2000 is over 20 years ago just makes me feel a little sick to my stomach. Actually. I know. I don't really. So, yeah. I don't like it. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a new steel containment structure named the New Safe Confinement was constructed to replace the aging and hastily built sarcophagus that protected reactor number four. The project was delayed several times, but construction finally began in September 2010. It is a large arch-shaped structure made out of steel, 270 meters wide, 100 meters high, and 150 meters long to cover the old crumbling concrete dome that was used at the time. The structure was built in two segments, which were joined in August 2015. In November 2016, the completed arch was placed over the existing sarcophagus. This steel casing project was expected to cost $1.4 billion, and it was completed in 2017. Which is not that long ago. No, it it really blows my mind. This is all recent stuff that they have been dealing with still. Yeah. So now you may be wondering, is that it, or are there still potential dangers at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant today? And I wish I could say, all is well, nothing to worry about, but I was able to come up with a couple things that gave me anxiety. Oh, good. Yeah. Bring him on. <laughs> so not surprisingly, the area is still contaminated and uninhabitable, for the most part anyways. According to National Geographic, approximately 7,000 people have returned to live and work in and around the area. Of those, about 4,000 come in and out of the zone for work on a schedule that minimizes their risks. Others live in the exclusion zone full-time and live off the land, despite the dangers that still lie within the soil. Most of these residents are women in their 70s and 80s, which is random, but very interesting. And I think that number, most of them are workers. I think like actual residents that return to Pripyat and Chernobyl, there's only like a couple hundred that are actual like residents there. Within the zone, there are still hundreds of tons of debris from the reactor and the equipment buried in roughly 800 waste disposal sites that were lined with concrete, but no one kept track of where these were located, which I think is why not? kind of funny that it's just like, wherever you go in the area, you might be standing on top of highly radioactive waste, but it's fine. It's just, totally fine. Just don't go there. That. Just, yeah. Forest fires are also threatening not only to the people in the area, but those in surrounding countries as radiation on the vegetation is being released into the atmosphere once again when it is burned. So there's ah. been lots of forest fires in the last couple of years. I think 2020, they had a really big one and there was radiation being detected in countries far away from them. And I think the radiation levels were like 10 times higher than normal or something like that. So I was like, oh, that's, oh, I hate that. It's great. I hate that. <laughs> that's a good one. That's good. Mm-hmm. Some also say that there is a possible danger of another explosion. Earlier this year, 2021, scientists confirmed that they have recorded a rise in nuclear activity under the reactor, which I know is, it's exactly what you wanted to hear, right? (laughs) Dude. Dude. (laughs) From powertechnology.com, quote, the rising neutron levels now indicate that these fuel-containing materials are undergoing new fission reactions as neutrons strike and split the nuclei of uranium atoms creating energy. For now, the radioactive waste is smoldering, 
but it will not be unlikely if the embers ignite as a result of being undisturbed for so long, leading to another explosion. However, experts ensured that a potential explosion wouldn't be as... <laughs> Sorry, I can see your face. <laughs> However, experts ensured that a potential explosion wouldn't be anywhere near as destructive as the one that shattered the plant in 1986 and that the blast would be largely contained within the steel and concrete cage, end quote. Still very unsettling, in my opinion. (laughs) How can you guarantee that? (laughs) I don't think you can. It'll be fine. It's just like saying a reactor can explode. And now they're like, oh, it's fine. It's contained in a structure. Well, it was originally contained in the structure Uh before that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, great. Now I'm stressed. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you don't want to live there, but there is the option to visit, Michelle, which you seem very... No, no. I'm opposed. Well, too bad. We've talked about opposed. (laughs) Maybe I'll change your mind. We'll see. So tourism has been allowed in the exclusion zone since 2019, but only in areas that have been deemed safe by the government, which also not sure if I trust that too much. (laughs) Just saying. You just told me that there's like 800 (laughs) radioactive sites that are unknown but sure but the government will tell you vacay to chernobyl yeah no thanks did you just say chernobyl (laughs) yeah i like that (laughs) let's go to chernobyl so visitors are equipped with dosimeters and have many guidelines to follow including don't walk in the forest don't pet the dogs cover your arms and legs don't touch any artifacts, and you should probably shower before going to bed. (laughs) No, just don't go there. (laughs) I mean, I would love to go there, but also I love going into forests and I love petting dogs. So now I'm like, eh, would it be worth it? I don't know. No, probably not. No. (laughs) All visitors must be accompanied by a guide, which is not surprising because I could see a lot of people trying to do things and go places they shouldn't in an area like this. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta keep the riffraff out. Much of the allure to this area is how creepy it is, a city that was completely abandoned and frozen in time. You don't see it very often to this magnitude. So many of you have probably seen pictures online of what it looks like today, and they definitely make me want to check it out. But unfortunately, however... No broken. No, don't go. It looks so spooky and just, I don't know, intriguing. Spooky? Yes. Intriguing? No. (laughs) No. You know, the only thing setting me back is that would be a really long trip from Alberta to Ukraine and there'd be a lot of driving and sounds inconvenient, but otherwise I would totally go. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, however, the eerie photos of the exclusion zone may not always be 100% genuine. There have been reports of visitors observing photographers and other tourists moving around artifacts and repositioning furniture in order to create the perfect horror shot. Some people use the photos to make money off of people who love what's called ruin porn, which is basically a genre of photography that focuses on urban decay in the post-industrial world. 
mostly abandoned and haunted-looking cities and buildings, which makes Chernobyl a perfect subject. Even though some tourists may mess with the artifacts, I'm sure it is still incredibly creepy, though, and it would be a fascinating place to visit. One of the rules is don't touch the artifacts. I know, and they're all like, oh. But they're just like, uh, let's just, like, tweak this a little. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if you look And their fingers fall off from radiation. (laughs) Was it worth it? Can't even (laughs) press the button on your camera anymore. Right. (laughs) But if you look at some of the photos from Chernobyl, it's like, yeah, I don't think that's how it actually was. You know, like, no, there's some very staged photos, but it's like, yeah, definitely. I would agree that that's creepy. It looks really cool, but that's definitely staged. Yes. So let's move on to human deformities. Because that's a fun subject. Great. Love that. <laughs> Love that for <laughs> us. Despite many claims that there have been no inherited or reproductive effects from the accident, other sources give very different reports. Quote, according to Chernobyl Children International, as of 2015, the events of 1986 continue to affect millions of people who live in the fallout zone today and more than 1 million children live in areas that are still contaminated. In Ukraine, 6,000 children are born every year with genetic head defects. Every year, more than 3,000 Ukrainian children die from lack of medical attention. There has been a 200% increase in birth defects and a 250% increase in congenital birth deformities in children born in the Chernobyl fallout area since 1986, which is, that's pretty significant. Just gonna pop in In Belarus, 85% of children are deemed to be Chernobyl victims. They carry genetic markers that could affect their health at any time and can be passed on to their children. UNICEF found increases in children's disease rates. There has been a 38% increase in malignant tumors, a 43% increase in blood circulatory illnesses, and a 63% increase in bone, muscle, and connective tissue system disorders, end quote. So, (laughs) that's a lot. And I found this resource from a podcast called Other People's Lives on an episode titled, I Was Stolen at Birth to Cover Up Chernobyl. So, Other People's Lives. I don't know if anybody watches Joe Sanagato, but I always have. And he has this podcast where he just talks to random people that have interesting life experiences. And so they talked to this woman who was, let's see, how do I explain this? When she was born, her parents were essentially told that we're going to take your baby and we're going to give it to an orphanage because it's going to die anyways. So then you don't have to deal with the trauma of your baby dying. We're just going to get rid of it for you. But A lot of those children didn't die, and now they're dispersed all around. Some of them do have deformities and all this stuff. And this went on for a very long time, and it's it's very crazy. (laughs) So I know. And so there is still this, um, let's see, the Chernobyl Children's International is still working with children like this to this day, and children that are still being born and are affected right now. Like, it's crazy. So it's insane. I know. So anyways, if you want to hear that story, go listen to other people's lives because it blew my mind that that's not really something that people talk about. I haven't heard anywhere else, but it was like a real life person telling her story of how she was taking that childbirth and given away. Wow. Right. That's terrible. 
it is God. terrible. Yeah. So very Next interesting. Next level terrible, actually. Uh, yeah. I know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, there was no effects from the disaster whatsoever to children. They're totally fine, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's not okay. Um, as for animal deformities, there are also a lot of myths and facts that surround the topic. Um, farmers in the area observed a steep increase of birth defects in their livestock, which included piglets with malformed skulls and frog-like eyes, which sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And calves born without legs, eyes, or heads. These claims were dismissed by the Tricotov Institute as they claim the deformities came from the use of fertilizers and improper farming practices. Funny how both of those things suddenly became an issue after 1986. But okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Crazy coincidence right there. Weird how those things happen. Mm -hmm. In October 1989, a newspaper reported that hundreds of tons of meat contaminated with radiation had been mixed into sausage and sold to consumers since the disaster had occurred. Of course, these claims were denied as well, although it is interesting that the workers of these meat plants had been paid a bonus to compensate them for their exposure to radiation. But I'm sure the meat is just totally fine to eat. <laughs> You know, it's just coming pre-microwaved. It's fine. <laughs> That's why you're picking up some radiation there. It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> the wildlife in the area have been affected as well, of course, though for the most part, the animals are actually doing pretty well. If you search for mutated Chernobyl animals on the internet, especially on TikTok, you will see all kinds of crazy deformities. However, most of the time, it's pretty apparent that these are not from Chernobyl whatsoever. It's actually very annoying when you try to research Chernobyl and then all these like stupid things pop up and it's like, that's a cow from India, like, or wherever. It's just like, that's not <laughs> happening there. Like, they don't have those animals there. No, but and like, we get freaking inside out calves and two headed calves and stuff here. So, absolutely. Like, it happens all over the world. Yeah. So, basically, people just pick images from online of deformed animals they're like it was Chernobyl so yeah it's kind of annoying for the most part any issues in wildlife as a result from the radiation include animals with smaller brains cataracts tumors and sterility but the exclusion zone has become somewhat of a sanctuary for wildlife as they are thriving without the presence of people some have even said that they have seen animals that haven't lived in the area for many years now returning such as wolves elk bears and rare birds interesting and i think it's no it's, i think it's really interesting that nature's just gonna keep going mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right like animals aren't scared to be there they don't know any different right they probably can't reproduce properly but I will get whatever to. they're just living in this like perfect zone i guess for that's uninhabited by humans right exactly and so. where there are no humans, mm -hmm. animals tend to thrive a little bit more. <laughs> mm -hmm. So another fun argument that I had with my husband regarding nuclear power was about the giant catfish that can be found in Chernobyl's cooling pond. So <laughs> there are giant catfish in Chernobyl. And Wiley says it's due to radiation, but I say it's due to having no human interference and no other predators. They're in a secluded uh -huh. pond 
they have the food and everything else they need to survive, so they're going to grow bigger. And that happens yeah, all it's not like, it happens it's not like all around the, the world. It's like from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that's in there. It's like Right, exactly. No, it's just cuz they aren't being exposed to predators. Exactly. And, and it's then not they get to eat all the little fish. Right, exactly. And it's not like it's the only place in the world that there are giant catfish. Like there's giant catfish in many, many places, but it just so happens yeah. that this is a, a cooling pond to Chernobyl. But yes, we argued about this as well. I found an article to prove my point and I texted it to him while we were in different rooms because I couldn't talk about it anymore because I was so mad. But I like sent the article <laughs> off like, here you go. <laughs> point proven. Fuck you, I win. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yes anyways i just wanted to throw that out there i feel like you never see radiation making animals like bigger it's always like they're stunted or you know have yeah. minor deformities but they don't mutate them into giant animals like i said it's not the teenage mutant ninja turtles no it's not. it's not how it works i mean have you been in the basement though maybe there are teenage mutant ninja turtles down there you don't um, know no because there's an elephant's foot down there that no thank you no thank you <laughs> there has also been some research done on cattle found within the exclusion zone which i found quite interesting the animals had initially been rendered infertile due to the acute doses of radiation however they slowly recovered and the radioactive farm's first calf was born in 1989 this herd has been expanded to 30 or more cattle some from the exclusion zone and some from decontaminated land so they could study the animals side by side. Blood work from both groups have shown no radiation exposure. So I thought that was very interesting. And That's by the way, very cool. this sounds like my dream job. To study animals in a radioactive zone is just very cool to me. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, um, I would love, love to be the person looking at those blood smears because mm -hmm. that would be freaking awesome but i don't want to do it there send them to me again the traveling part is an issue for me i don't want to yeah. have to go all the way there and i don't want to move but it would be very interesting to be like yeah my job is to study animals that are in a radioactive zone because of chernobyl right and, and you just fedex me those blood samples and i will look at them because that sounds cool yeah very cool all right so okay fun part we're going to talk about conspiracy theories, myths, urban legends, all that good stuff. And I have quite a few. So but hold on to your butts. So starting with Blackbird of Chernobyl. If you have heard the story of Mothman from West Virginia, the story of the Blackbird of Chernobyl may sound very familiar as well. Beginning in early April 1986, the people in and around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant began to experience a series of strange events revolving around sightings of a mysterious creature described as a large, dark, and mutated man with gigantic wings and piercing red eyes. People affected by this phenomenon experienced horrific nightmares, threatening phone calls, and first-hand encounters with the winged beast, which became known as the Blackbird of Chernobyl. Reports of these strange happenings continued to increase until the morning of April 26, 1986, when the explosion of reactor number four occurred. The workers who survived the initial blast and fire, but would later die of radiation poisoning, claimed to have witnessed what has been described as a large black bird-like creature with a 20-foot wingspan, 
gliding through the swirling plumes of radiated smoke pouring from the reactor. No further sightings of the Blackbird of Chernobyl were reported after the Chernobyl disaster, leaving researchers to speculate just what haunted the workers of the plant during the days leading up to the disaster. Most commonly accepted theories suggest that the Blackbird of Chernobyl may have been the same creature spotted in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, leading up to the collapse of the Silver Bridge on December 15, 1968. Investigators have suggested that the appearance of this creature is an omen of disaster to come in the area in which it shows itself. The physical description of both the Blackbird of Chernobyl and Mothman are very similar, and reports of nightmares and threatening phone calls leading up to these disasters are shared in both cases. What the fuck? <laughs> I love it so much. I'm a fan of Mothman. <laughs> yeah, no, he freaks me out. Um, no, this is not okay. Not okay. No. Also, this is the only Why? place that I see that survivors <laughs> of Chernobyl have witnessed this. But according to this article, wherever it came from, the survivors say they saw it. Or actually, not the survivors. The ones that died of radiation sickness say they saw it. Maybe well, it affected it's not their like brain a little bit. We can go back and ask them. So no. So I guess we just have to take this article's word for it, and this happened. Well, and everything you find on the internet is 100% accurate, right? 100%. I only use reliable sources. <laughs> 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 All right. Next up is alien cleanup. Apparently, aliens had a hand in the Chernobyl cleanup. Rather than being accused of causing the nuclear meltdown as part of a plot to take over the world, urban myths allege that extraterrestrials helped prevent further disaster at Chernobyl as many expected the, catas the catastrophic event to be worse than it actually was. An eyewitness saw a fiery ball of light hovering for a few minutes above the exposed reactor on the night of the accident. This ball of light was also allegedly seen on September 16, 1989, when there was a further radiation leak from the unit at Chernobyl, which some imaginative narrators said come from aliens who were containing the radiation. Similar conspiracies surround the Fukushima disaster as well. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So basically, they're like, this is going to so, affect the whole universe. We need to help control this. Yeah. So did you read that on like the tablets at the grocery store where they say that Elvis is alive? And love. Because that's what it sounds like. Love those tabloids. The National Enquirer. I was like, what is it called? I know <laughs> me too. I was like, it's right there, but I cannot think of it. Yes. Yes. Man, that was a highlight of grocery shopping with my mom as a kid was like, what is that going to say today? <laughs> right. Who's going to be on the cover today? And right? what? Yes. Now I was always like, is it about aliens? Because I hope it's about aliens. Now I'm like, I don't want to talk about aliens. <laughs> I don't want to talk about aliens. <laughs> so yeah, that was a thing. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Next is Chernobyl linked to HIV-like condition. The Chernobyl disaster had a huge impact on East and Central Europe, both on the day-to-day -day lives of people in the region and on their health. The accident had been linked to an increase in thyroid cancers, amongst other forms of cancer in the area, but it has also been the target for fake medical stories. Rumors have spread that Chernobyl survivors and their families have some kind of contagious illness, Chernobyl HIV, that can be spread to others. 
The disaster coincided with the height of the panic and ignorance surrounding HIV, so the story receives some traction. The stigma impacts the local economy as companies are less inclined to invest in affected areas, and it also contributes to the isolation of those who have already been through something horrible. So, yeah. This, yeah. This is just a really sad one, I guess. Like, yeah. Hmm. Like, why do you gotta spread those rumors? That's terrible. Right? HIV is bad enough on its own. Don't make it radioactive HIV. Oh, nope. That's the last thing we need right now. Okay. Next, of course, in any disaster or apocalyptic situation, there's zombie attacks. Naturally. Naturally. So one common hoax is that the blast mutated humans into flesh-eating zombies that will devour any disaster tourists or researchers that cross their paths. One piece of evidence was a grainy video shot from a helicopter that appeared to show said zombies ripping a man apart limb from limb. In reality, this video was from a 2007 Ukrainian video game called Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl. In the game, the zombies are mutants that are created after a second disaster, 20 years after the first, during repopulation efforts. Someone later posted the video on YouTube trying to pass it off as real, and it is not. (laughs) I love that. I know. (laughs) The idea of Chernobyl zombies was revisited in a horror movie called Chernobyl Diaries, in which a group of young disaster tourists decide to check out Pripyat only to, spoiler, get attacked by zombies. Have you watched that? Yeah, I, uh, I totally have. I feel like I have too, but I really want to rewatch it now. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't that good. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't doubt that for a second, but I it still want to rewatch it. It was definitely like creepy because like you'd see like they'd have the buildings in the background or whatever, and you'd see something just like Ugh. move out of the corner of your eye in one right. of the windows. But it, yeah, it's like a crappy horror movie, but yeah, I definitely have watched that one. <laughs> but those are so fun though. Sometimes more than the good ones (laughs) honestly but i usually only ever watch them once just because i'm like yeah well yep yeah it was shit that's what i expected exactly i watched it because i needed to see it once (laughs) right just for the experience watch the trailer actually for the chernobyl diaries and you'll get the whole premise of the movie and yeah i believe that okay next is government cover-up A disaster of this magnitude often attracts the standard conspiracy theory that it was all orchestrated by the government, in this case, the Soviet government. According to one such theory, the Chernobyl disaster was constructed by the Soviet regime due to the failure of an incredible missile defense radio structure. Suspected of being wildly over budget, the structure was deemed such an expensive flop that in order to eliminate it, the nearby Chernobyl facility was also allowed to go into meltdown. That makes a whole lot of sense. Wow. Other government... (laughs) I don't don't have a lot to say about that one. Other government-level conspiracy theories include that the CIA sabotaged vital equipment at the plant, or that the disaster was a long-term plan by the Russians to turn Europe off building new nuclear plants and to be reliant on Russian oil and gas. Which, sure. I mean, I believe that there was some government cover-up happening. Yeah. Like in the actual story, but I don't think that they planned for that reactor to go down because mm. they were completely oblivious to the fact that it actually could explode. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. 
And then we have the ghosts of Chernobyl. As with any site where a number of people have lost their lives, Pripyat is rife with ghost stories. Some include hearing someone screaming for rescue from a fire inside the reactor or seeing lights turn on inside when no one has been in the building for years. I'm sure there's... If one place in the world is haunted, it'd be that place. A hundred percent. It's like, yeah, that's not even a question. (laughs) No, like there's ghosts cruising through that exclusion zone. All throughout it. Like not just the power plant, but can you imagine the apartments and the forest? The zombie dogs. Yeah. All the things. Yeah. And lastly, we have stalkers. In 2014, Slate ran an extensive piece on a subcultural phenomenon known as stalkers. These young Russians and Ukrainians, almost all of whom are men, romanticize the apocalyptic environment of the exclusion zone and courted off area surrounding Chernobyl. They sneak in, explore buildings, sleep in ruins, and even bring dosimeters along to see how much radiation they expose themselves to on their journeys. Stalkers court danger by eating fruit that grows in the zone, while sharing tales of ancestors who lived and worked there when disaster struck. They dress in paramilitary gear and wear gas masks, balaclavas, and other such covers over their faces. Which would be very creepy to see. Totally, but also if they are actually doing that, they're stupid. (laughs) No kidding. Like, I shouldn't have to say it, but don't do that. (laughs) Like, just don't. Like, come on, people. People are, are strange sometimes. So, anyways... After all that, did I change your mind? You want to visit no. Chernobyl with me? Oh, no, damn no, it. I will not. Oh, I thought I... I did hear. I was just recently. Well, it wasn't too recently, but I found an article not too long ago that um, it was about a Ukrainian vodka company that is started making vodka in the exclusion zone. Yes, I did see so, something like, about that. Testing out like radioactive, not radioactive vodka, and they're marketing it that way. It's actually. Once it's been distilled and stuff, it's not coming out radioactive, but they tried to get it licensed in the States and the States was like, oh, hells no. (laughs) Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) It's going to be a no from us. Let's not and say we did. (laughs) Wow. That is like the most Ukrainian, like Russian vibe ever. It's just radioactive vodka. (laughs) Just make some radioactive vodka. It'll be fine. Sounds fun. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I have to find the article again and actually like reread it. Totally. But yeah, (laughs) that's very interesting. So that is basically my coverage on Chernobyl. Do you have any closing or final thoughts on the case? (sighs) I have lots of thoughts, Mm -hmm. but I think you should just say yours because I think it it covers it up. It it covers what I want to say. Okay. Sounds good. So my final thoughts. It's easy for us to sit back with our coffees, reading our books in our cozy houses and criticize the actions that were taken in this case. We can point out all the errors and call people stupid, but obviously we only know that their actions were wrong because it was explained to us after the entire situation unfolded. So a lot of decisions were made with the best knowledge they had available to them. However, a lot of decisions were made in order to hide the truth of what really happened. And that's where I have an issue with it. This resulted Mm -hmm. in harming hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily. And I just want to end on the note of remembering the countless men and women that put their lives at risk 
for the health of others, because I think they are so often forgotten in this story, which after diving so deep into it is just crazy to me that it never occurred to me that all these people sacrificed themselves for this not to be a bigger disaster than what it actually was. So I just want to remember those heroes. Exactly. That's, that's my thoughts too. Like we, we can sit here and criticize all we want, but in the end, this thing happened, a shitload of people died and a shitload of people sacrificed themselves for the good of the world. Mm -hmm. So let's remember them. Let's honor them Mm -hmm. and respect them and hopefully never have to live through something like this again. Absolutely. 100%. I think that is a good place to end our story for today. Yes. My sources for part three were powertechnology.com, theatlantic.com, businessinsider.com, chernobylinternational.com. These last ones <laughs> were obviously the last part of my <laughs> myths and stuff. Creepy pasta. I did not actually use that for <laughs> for you know legitimate <laughs> research and ranker.com. <laughs> Those were the fun ones Perfect. at the end. Of course. Yes. So how about some fluff and stuff? Please, let's I mean <laughs> The conspiracy theories and stuff were pretty fluffy. They were. But, um, yeah, let's have some fluff and stuff. This will be, what, our last fluff and stuff question for a little while. So that's right. So a little bit different of a fluff and stuff question than what we usually do. But since we're both, you know, having babies soon, we want to know what genders do you think our baby marauders will be? So, And we want to preface this by saying that we don't know. No, we don't. Yeah. We both are leaving it so to be a surprise. So tell us what you think. And Michelle, yeah. you go first. What do you think? Um, I definitely think you're having a boy. <laughs> I felt boy the whole way along. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. I have that same feeling, but I also don't want to say that because I have no idea. So we will I see. I know. I know. It's it's so fun, isn't it? It, it kind is. of screws with your brain a little bit, especially at this point. You're like, well, I just want to know. I know. It's like <laughs> something very exciting to look forward to anyways, but regardless, mm-hmm. either way, I don't care, but it is very fun. Michelle, I think you're yes. having a girl. That's what I okay. have thought. Interesting. Would you agree? Um, My... I don't know. <laughs> I have feelings back and forth right now because mm. I just don't know. But my son is adamant that it's a girl. Interesting. Like if I'm like, but buddy, what if you get a brother? And he's like, no, Mm-mm. I'm getting a sister. Interesting. I don't want a brother. That's funny. And and Sarah goes back and forth. She's like, the more she listens to James say that he thinks it's a girl, she's mm-hmm. more on like, oh yeah, I think it's a girl. And I'm like- right. Okay, okay, but we'll see. What if it's boy? Yeah. <laughs> Most people are actually saying girl for me, That's which is funny. That is but funny. I'm like, I'm mentally preparing for a boy because if everybody else is a girl, I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need to have some boy names in my back pocket or something. <laughs> I also think that's really interesting because with the other two, well, especially with Sarah, you were adamant, like you knew what you were having. So it's I funny knew. that you're so like, back if- and forth now we're in un- yeah and with james undecided. I, yeah and i didn't find out with either of them but mm-hmm. sarah i was like 100 sure she was a girl like i felt girl the whole way through and i was like if she yeah. comes out a boy like somebody gave me the wrong baby right with james <laughs> waffled back 
thinking back afterwards, like maybe I knew a little bit more than I let on. Cause like I painted my toenails blue before I went into labor and I, you yeah. know, just had little boy like things that I'd yeah. done. Right. But this yeah. one, yeah, this I, one just, is, I don't know. We don't know. We will find out. This one's the wild card. The this wild is the tiebreaker, card. right? Yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. I mean, by the time that uh, we actually get to read everybody else's responses to this question, we will know for sure. But uh, we're very excited to see what you guys yeah. think. Yeah. There's all the theories yes. of looking at the belly and the, you know, complexion and there's hundreds oh, of God. wives' tales. Are you carrying and- high or low? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Has anybody pendulumed your belly? There's been multiple people that have wanted to, but I have yet allowed them to. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, it just never happened for my other two. Mm -hmm. And uh, just on my birthday this year, my two girlfriends are like, hand me your wedding ring. We're hanging it in front of your belly to see what it is. (laughs) Nice. And what did that say? Girl. There you go. So we will find out if it's accurate. We'll see. <laughs> Soon enough. We'll report back. We will. <laughs> there will be updates. Awesome. So make sure to answer our question as well. And obviously let us know what you think about the episode. Uh, you can email us at murdermerlo at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murdermerlo podcast, Facebook at murdermerlo podcast, and Twitter at murdermerlo1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you did to me. Yeah. And I just wanted to um, thank everybody for all of their well wishes and congratulations on our social media because that was super sweet and we appreciated all of your responses. Yeah. You guys are the best. Thank you so, so much. We are very excited and it's so nice to see everybody else excited too. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Tara here. Real quick, I realized while editing that Michelle and I had a baby brain moment and we did not mention our book club whatsoever, which is, you know, a main part of our podcast. So I just wanted to put it out there. If you have read the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Hagedbotham, please come back and join us for our book club episode that will be out next. And also, if you have read the book, please, please, please Tell us your thoughts, send in your feedback, answer our questions that are posted on social media. We would love to know your thoughts on the book as well, and we'll include your answers in the show. So again, please come back for our book club episode on Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Thank you. Yeah, so remember to drink wine. Because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye. Bye.